It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. During the early 1960s, an unassuming house in Houston, Texas, caught fire. In the aftermath, the local fire inspector ordered that the place be cleared out of debris. A nurse who had been hired to care for a couple of the elderly residents of the home took on the task, and as a result, decades' worth of junk was carted from the attic and tossed out to the curb. Among these items were a few genuine World War I uniforms, some very old records, and a stack of notebooks. There are multiple published versions of what happened next, but one way or another, those notebooks made their way into the hands of a local junk man named Fred Washington. He took them to his junk shop, the OK Trading Center, where they lay stacked on the floor partially covered by a tarp because the roof leaked. Then in 1969, an art history student named Mary Jane Victor stumbled across those notebooks inside the junk shop and was amazed at what they contained. At the time, Victor was working for an art patron and heiress named Dominique de Menil, who had tasked her with keeping an eye out for unusual, surrealist, and primitive art. Victor told her boss about what she found, and shortly thereafter, the heiress paid Washington $1,500 for four of the earliest notebooks. What these books contained were page after page of colorful paintings and collages of dirigible-like flying machines and in between the detailed illustrations were scribbles of text and even coded messages, all of which added up to tell a remarkable story. These were the notebooks of a Prussian immigrant and former butcher named Charles Delshaw, who spent much of his retirement holed up in his stepdaughter's attic, where he spent untold hours documenting what amounted to his illustrated memoirs. Delshaw arrived in Galveston in 1849 when he was about 19 years old. He spent most of his life following in his father's footsteps, working as a butcher in Richmond. In 1861, he married a widow who already had a five-year-old daughter. Delshaw managed to outlive his wife and most of the children he fathered with her. Then in the late 1800s, he went to work as a clerk for his stepdaughter's husband. After his son-in-law passed away, Delshaw moved in with his widowed stepdaughter and her children. According to most accounts, Delshaw spent much of his time up in the attic of his stepdaughter's Houston home working by candlelight to put down his memoirs on butcher paper. He apparently completed a new page roughly every two days, working practically up until the day he died in 1923 at age 93. These intricately detailed illustrations and collages were compiled into the series of notebooks that later ended up getting tossed out to the curb. Over time, these notebooks would be put on display and sold through a number of art galleries and museums, before finally catching the attention of a researcher named Peter Navarro, who recognized them as something more than just a lovely example of local folk art. Navarro, you see, had been looking into the history of people claiming to have witnessed mysterious airships floating in the skies over America throughout the 19th century, 
And if the story Navarro and other researchers pieced together about Delshaw is to be believed, the former butcher was actually a member of a secret society of aviators who discovered the key to flight years before the Wright brothers. I'm Nate Hale, coming to you live from the actual soundstage where Stanley Kubrick faked the moon landings, which incidentally he filmed on location for authenticity. And this is The Conspirators. For practically as long as there have been written histories, people have been documenting strange objects they've seen in the skies that they claimed were piloted by living beings. In 215 BC, for example, one Roman history described multiple sightings of flying ships in the sky. During the 9th century AD, a number of church leaders in France attempted to quash some pagan beliefs about mysterious things up above. There's a text titled The Book Against False Opinions Concerning Thunder and Lightning, written by Agabard, the Bishop of Lyon, in which he describes the fear that existed among members of his flock that a number of earthly sorcerers were going to create an alliance with the people of the clouds, who would then rain down bad weather and destroy their crops. Now, I don't have the time or big enough hair to get into all the ancient alien stories in this episode. So let's skip ahead to the 19th century when a new wave of UFO sightings began to emerge. Throughout the last few years of the 19th century, you can find hundreds of newspaper reports of people claiming to have seen mysterious airships in the sky. Depending on who you asked, these ships were either the work of beings from outer space or ingenious inventors who built their own top-secret lighter-than-air contraptions. One of the most famous examples of the first variety was reported in the April 17, 1897 edition of the Dallas Morning News. An article written by a resident of Aurora, Texas named S.E. Hayden claimed that just after dawn on April 15th, a strange airship flew low over the town and crashed into Judge J.S. Proctor's windmill. According to the article, quote, The early risers of Aurora were astonished at the sudden appearance of the airship which had been sailing throughout the country. Evidently, some of the machinery was out of order for it was making a speed of only 10 or 12 miles an hour and gradually settling toward the earth. It sailed over the public square and when it reached the north part of town, collided with Judge Proctor's windmill and went to pieces with a terrific explosion, scattering debris over several acres of ground, wrecking the windmill and water tank and destroying the judge's flower garden. Hayden then went on to describe the craft's pilot whose remains were badly disfigured, but, as he put it, still identifiable enough to show that he was not an inhabitant of this world. The alien body supposedly carried with it some papers containing some sort of strange hieroglyphics, and the ship itself was built of some unknown metal resembling a mixture of aluminum and silver. Witnesses estimated the debris to have weighed several tons. As a good God-fearing town, the residents of Aurora did the only respectable thing, which was clean up the debris and give the deceased pilot a formal Christian burial. This incident might have been forgotten in UFO lore until 1973 when researcher Jim Mars interviewed an 83-year-old man named Charlie Stevens, who revealed that he had actually witnessed the crash when he was a 10-year-old boy. He told Mars that he had been reluctant to tell anyone what he saw over the years, but he finally opened up to Mars and told him that he, when he was a boy, he and his dad were working with their cattle when they spotted the cigar-shaped craft passing low overhead. They were startled as the craft zipped past them headed in the direction of Aurora before it disappeared from sight. 
followed by a loud explosion. Stevens wanted to chase after it, but his father kept him there to help with the cattle. The following day, Stevens' father went into town to view the debris for himself. Mars traveled to Aurora and found a crude headstone in the local cemetery that he believed marked the alien pilot's grave. The stone was half broken and on the remaining half was etched a crude drawing of a spaceship with small circles that appeared to be portholes. It appeared the grave wasn't large enough to hold a full-sized person. Rather, it was about the size of a grave for a child or a very small person. Another journalist named Bill Case visited the grave on a later date with a metal detector and he claimed to have detected three large pieces of metal buried there, although Case also said that he returned on a different occasion and was unable to detect anything metallic at the time. He did note, though, that when he returned, it appeared the grave had been disturbed. There was a metal pipe inserted into the ground, which indicated to him someone must have dug up the grave and removed whatever had been buried there. Sometime in the 1970s, the remainder of the grave marker was stolen and the precise location of the grave was lost. Since then, several UFO researchers have visited Aurora looking for the grave and remaining debris, but everyone has come away empty-handed. Much of Hayden's article is attributed to a report by an Army Signal Service officer named T.J. Weems from nearby Fort Worth. It was Weems who described to Hayden the alien's Christian burial by a traveling pastor named William Russell Tabor. The article also claimed most of the ship's wreckage had been dumped into a nearby well, located underneath the damaged windmill. Another story only further added to the mystery when in 1935 a man named Brawley Oates reportedly purchased Judge Proctor's property and went on to clean out the debris from the well in order to use it for a water source. But after that, Oates suffered from a sudden and unexpected case of arthritis, which he claimed resulted from drinking the contaminated water. After that, Oates sealed up the well with a concrete slab and placed an outbuilding on top of the slab. Then in 1980, a Time Magazine interview with an 86-year-old Aurora resident named Etta Pegways came out in which she claimed the entire story to be a hoax. According to the elderly resident, Hayden was a local telegraph operator who dreamed up the story during a particularly boring shift. The man fabricated the story in order to bring tourists to Aurora which became a dying town after the railroad was built passing them by. Besides the Time article, there have been other researchers who have cast further shade on the story after discovering Judge Proctor probably didn't even have a windmill on his property. Some researchers have also pointed out the type of well that was being described as the location of the alien debris likely wasn't even built until sometime after 1940. In 2008, the TV series UFO Hunters managed to get permission from Brawley Oates' grandson to unseal the well. Water was taken from the well and tested, and it did apparently contain a large amount of aluminum. But sadly, no alien wreckage was ever discovered. Ground-penetrating radar was also used on the local cemetery, but the alleged alien grave could not be located either. Dubious reporting is a recurring problem with a lot of such stories of phantom airships throughout the mid to late 19th century. In fact, I should also point out that the Aurora crash wasn't even the only such UFO story reported at the same time. On the very same day the Dallas Morning News article was published, a rancher named Alexander Hamilton, no, not that one, allegedly had his own alien encounter on his Kansas farm. In a story published in the April 19, 1897 edition of a paper titled The Farmer's Advocate, it was claimed that a strange airship crewed by six tiny beings descended over a farm, lowered down a rope, and stole one of Hamilton's prize-winning calves. The next day, a neighbor discovered the hide and legs of the animal discarded nearby with no sign of footprints leading up to it. 
Now, of course, several researchers into cattle mutilation latched onto this story as early proof of the phenomenon. But during the mid-1970s, a reporter named Jerome Clark spoke to some of the elderly residents of the area, who admitted that Hamilton had made up the story for fun during a meeting of the local Liars Club he was a member of. Hamilton even later wrote a confession to the hoax, which remained forgotten about in the archives of another local paper, the Atchison County Mail, until its rediscovery in 1982. Back in the late 1800s, sensationalistic and outright false reporting became a widespread problem, and much of it can be attributed to a war of words between two publishing giants. In 1883, newspaper magnate Joseph Pulitzer purchased the New York World after making the St. Louis Dispatch the number one paper in that city. Pulitzer pulled out every trick he could think of to make the dispatch as entertaining as possible and boost circulation. He only charged two cents per issue for anywhere from 8 to 12 pages of news, while other competing papers had only half that many pages at best. Pulitzer packed his newspaper with lurid crime stories, cartoons, puzzles, and contests. Basically, anything you could print that could capture the public's attention. Just two years after Pulitzer took the paper over, it became the highest circulation paper in the city. Pulitzer's success caught the attention of William Randolph Hearst, a mining heir who inherited the San Francisco Examiner from his father in 1887. Hearst decided that anything Pulitzer could do, he could do better. He bought the paper the New York Journal, and he devoted as much as 24% of the paper's pages to lurid true crime stories. The juicier, the better. He plastered the front page with wild stories full of sex, gory details, and illustrations that would have been considered quite scandalous for the day. It was Erwin Wardman, the editor of the New York Press, who coined the term yellow journalism for the kind of sensational reporting both Hearst and Pulitzer were doing. The actual explanation why Wardman used this particular term are a little vague, but it's sometimes tied to a popular comic strip called The Yellow Kid that was published in both Hearst and Pulitzer's newspapers. Whatever the case, this style of sensational yellow journalism spread quickly throughout the country. Newspapers across the United States began publishing all sorts of wild, uncorroborated stories, many of which proved to be outright hoaxes or frauds. For example, a story on the front page of the April 5, 1909 edition of the Arizona Gazette recounted the discovery of a series of secret caves containing a huge Egyptian temple inside the Grand Canyon. The story claimed two Smithsonian-funded archaeologists, Professors S.A. Jordan and G.E. Kincaid, discovered the hidden tomb packed full of Egyptian artifacts and mummies in a nearly impossible-to-reach cave 1,500 feet down a sheer cliff. Besides the fact the story makes very little sense how such a temple could have ever been built in the first place, the Smithsonian Institute has no record of ever employing anyone named S.A. Jordan or G.E. Kincaid nor of any such expedition ever taking place back in the early 20th century. In other words, the entire story is an outright fabrication. Likewise, this is why you have to take a lot of the accounts of phantom airships sighted over the United States throughout the late 1890s with a healthy dose of skepticism. Even still, these stories became so prevalent at the time that even Thomas Edison was forced to issue a strongly worded statement denying he had ever built such a secret flying contraption. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. 
Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. But even putting aside the stories of alien spaceships like that of the Aurora, Texas crash, the stories of inventors building their own dirigible-like craft don't seem completely implausible. Hot air balloons had been in use since the first recorded such flight back in France in 1783. There were numerous inventors over the century that followed who continued to innovate and figure out new ways to control such balloons, and even add new mechanisms to control directions and even powered flight. The end goal wasn't just to go up and down like a typical hot air balloon but to actually steer these lighter-than-aircraft and turn them into a legitimate means of transportation. In December 1783, a lieutenant named Jean-Baptiste Marie Mosnier presented a paper to the French Academy showing designs for an early dirigible-style craft that would be driven by three propellers and steered with an aft rudder. Just a couple of years later, Jean-Pierre Blanchard developed a type of balloon containing a hand-powered propeller that allowed him to cross the English Channel. In 1851, an Australian man named William Bland sent designs to the Great Exhibition held in London for a steam-driven, cigar-shaped balloon that could be maneuvered by two large propellers underneath. Bland claimed the craft could fly as quickly as 80 miles per hour and could travel from Sydney to London in less than a week. The following year, in 1852... Henri Gifford used a three-horsepower steam engine to control a propeller on a hot air balloon that helped him steer. This allowed him to fly his balloon over 27 kilometers across France. Back on June 1, 1863, an inventor named Solomon Andrews flew a craft he dubbed the Arion over Perth Amboy, New Jersey. Later that summer, he wrote to Abraham Lincoln offering his ship's designs to aid the Union Army in the Civil War. He even arranged a demonstration for the Smithsonian Institution the following year, but the U.S. government had little interest in his invention, and pretty soon after that, the war was over. In 1872, Paul Hainline flew an airship containing an internal combustion engine running on coal gas. He made his first public demonstration of this craft in 1878 and went on to sell five of them. Further such innovations would continue to be added as inventors and engineers kept working throughout the 19th century to perfect the flying vehicle. So in that respect, it doesn't seem like that big of a stretch to at least consider the possibility that perhaps some inventors were testing their own lighter-than-air vehicles in the United States and Europe, causing many of the phantom airship sightings claimed by witnesses. At the same time, many skeptics have rightly pointed out that a lot of these mysterious sightings can possibly be explained away by people misidentifying natural occurrences, such as comets, meteors, and other atmospheric phenomena. But based on the number of known inventors out there attempting to build their own flying contraptions, it's certainly worth speculating whether any of them actually succeeded. Although the vast majority of the Phantom Airship sightings occurred between 1896 and 1897, there were a few reports of a series of unusual cigar-shaped balloons sighted over Canada just a few years earlier. A story in the Santa Fe Weekly New Mexican from March 29, 1890 described another such close encounter. According to the article, three men were out on a stroll in Galisteo Junction. When they heard loud voices and the sounds of music coming from a large balloon they said was shaped like a fish that drifted toward them from the west. The men on the ground could neither see nor hear any engines. 
They also said the craft was apparently being flown around by 8 to 10 occupants. As proof that this incident really occurred, the men also claimed the balloon's occupants tossed out a number of objects, which included a flower accompanied by a piece of silk-like paper containing some hand-painted Chinese characters. A couple days later, one of the men showed this paper to a wealthy Chinese man who was visiting the area. This man claimed this note was written by his fiance, who was on board what was to be the maiden flight of an advanced Chinese aircraft on its way from San Francisco to New York. Although skeptics of this story rightly point out that neither the Chinese man's name were ever reported, nor has there ever been any such historical evidence presented that any such Chinese aircraft actually existed outside the one newspaper article. During the early evening of November 17, 1896 in Sacramento, California, dozens of people reported seeing what was described as a light resembling an electric arc lamp shining over the ground below that appeared to be emanating from some sort of large, oblong shape in the sky. Numerous witnesses described seeing the light passing over buildings. It was a dark and squalid night, making it difficult to fully make out the details of the craft, but many witnesses said it was shaped like a cigar. A few people said they thought they could see rudders and propellers as well. Some even claimed to have seen at least two human pilots on board working bicycle pedals. Although the craft itself made no noise, some people claimed they could hear music emanating from above. Witnesses heard men shouting things like, Go up higher! Some streetcar workers claimed they heard the men singing in chorus, and one of them exclaimed, We ought to get to San Francisco by tomorrow noon. The last anyone saw the mysterious aircraft on that occasion was as it flew away to the southwest against the prevailing wind. Several papers, including the San Francisco Chronicle, the San Francisco Call, and the Sacramento Evening Bee, all published articles describing the remarkable sighting. Then on November 21st, passengers on an Oakland cable car all claimed to have seen the craft flying by once again. After that, the story really blew up as thousands of new sightings were reported in a single day over Sacramento, Oakland, and San Francisco. On November 25th, the Phantom Airship was seen in at least 11 different places across the Bay Area, and even further north near Napa and Petaluma. A few more entrepreneurial types even set up telescopes and began charging money for a chance for people to see the Phantom Airship for themselves. By the end of November, the number of sightings began to dwindle. One newspaper quoted an astronomy professor who attempted to explain away the strange sightings as people misidentifying either Mars or Venus. A few more sightings still trickled in over the following days. Some suggestions were made that at least some of the sightings were a prank, put on by some rambunctious college students who let loose an ordinary balloon decorated with bicycle reflectors. On December 3rd, the mystery airship was sighted in six different locations from San Francisco to Vallejo, to a number of smaller towns further east. These sightings continued off and on before seeming to come to an end by the new year. But even as the sightings in California came to an end, that didn't stop them from occurring elsewhere. In February 1897, a cigar-shaped airship was seen flying over Hastings, Nebraska, more than 1,200 miles to the east. Although some news articles speculated this may have been the very same mystery aircraft sighted over the Bay Area after it had made a trek across the Rockies, still other reports suggested this particular craft might be a separate vehicle since some witnesses claimed to have sighted it at the very same time the California airship was being seen. 
These same witnesses said they didn't come forward at the time, though, for fear of sounding crazy. Mind you, not all newsmen of the area jumped on the Phantom Airship bandwagon. One reporter in Norfolk made a snarky comment about his fellow newsmen to the south who were so quick to report on such sightings as fact, going so far as to ask in one article which brand of whiskey they must have been drinking. According to some versions of event, it was a night of drinking that actually inspired a group of men, including Charles Delshaw, whom I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, to come together and form their own secret society of aviators that they called the Sonora Aero Club. After the discovery of the 12 notebooks Delshaw illustrated, researchers managed to piece together a surprising story that goes like this. It began during the gold rush as fortune seekers poured into California looking to strike it rich. During this time, the settlement of Sonora, about 130 miles east of San Francisco, was on the rise. It was in one of the local saloons that a group of men got together and began talking about their dreams of flight. According to the story, the Sonora Aero Club had at least 60 members. This included Peter Menes, a German miner and inventor of the club's secret formula for the miraculous lifting fluid he called Zupa that allowed their invention to fly. It was a club member named Gustav Freyer who came up with the initial concept for their top-secret invention, the Aero Garda. This revolutionary new airship would be surrounded by a circular protective cage, sort of like a giant hamster wheel, to keep the passengers safe from falling out. Freyer scribbled out his rough design with chalk on a blackboard. It was Charles Delshaw, the group's draftsman, who was tasked with putting these designs down on paper. To date, no one has ever been able to fully decode all the messages scrawled on the margins of Delshaw's notebooks. But the parts that have been decoded have told some pretty fantastic stories. One such tale tells of a club member who recklessly commandeered one of their airships and crashed into a sequoia tree, breaking his neck. In another story, a club member was suspected of using their top-secret airship for hauling cargo, an act that was strictly forbidden. In retaliation, some of the group members orchestrated a crash of the ship, causing the man to go down in flames. According to these tales written by Delshaw, group members remained under a strict code of secrecy and were instructed to do things like disguise their machines as ordinary covered wagons, or other recognizable devices to keep it hidden from prying eyes. But did any of this really happen? That's a little more difficult to determine. Outside of Delshaw's notebooks, there's scant evidence that the Sonora Aero Club actually got together and did what Delshaw claimed they did. Historian Tracy Baker White has spent roughly two decades trying to track down evidence supporting Delshaw's wild stories. And the best answer she has been able to come up with if the club was even real is maybe. She did find references to the club in San Francisco and Stockton in 1872, and again in Napa Valley in 1900. The one place she didn't find a link was Sonora. We know that Peter Menace was a real person who served in the Texas Mounted Volunteers during the Mexican War and died in November 1901. But if you believe Charles Delshaw's version of events, Menace actually died in a fiery crash of their flying vehicle in the 1860s, taking the secret of his lifting fluid to the grave with him. It was Menace's death that brought the Sonora Aero Club to an abrupt end since none of the other members knew the secret formula to get them off the ground. Delshaw's colorful drawings do show a number of somewhat workable designs for some of the mechanics of a vehicle, including gliding keels, bendable rubber joints, revolving shear blades, and retractable landing gear. 
But keep in mind, although these things would have been revolutionary for the time Delshaw claims the club was in operation, they were all known inventions by the time he actually put them down in paper during the early 20th century. A Houston graphic designer named Peter Navarro, who began researching stories of the 19th century phantom airships, stumbled across Delshaw's notebooks and began to speculate if there might be a connection. It was Navarro who tried to connect the dots between the Sonoro Aero Club and the spate of phantom airship sightings that occurred some 40 years later. He discovered an article in the San Antonio Daily Express from 1897 that describes a couple of these airships' pilots as being two men named Hiram Wilson and his father, Willard H. Wilson, an assistant master mechanic from the New York Central Railroad. In that story, Hiram Wilson divulged that he obtained his airship designs from his uncle. Navarro believes his uncle may have been a Sonora Aero Club member named Tosh Wilson that Delshaw mentions in one of the notebooks. According to Navarro, he believes Tosh Wilson was the only group member who ever managed to rediscover the secret formula to menace's lifting fluid. Navarro also claims the mystery of the Sonoro Aero Club goes even deeper than anyone knows. He claims to have deciphered some of Delshaw's secret codes and was able to figure out that the Sonora Aero Club was backed by an even more secret society that went by the acronym NIMSA, although no one actually knows what those letters stand for. According to some UFO researchers, NIMSA is actually a secret group run by aliens. One researcher named Walter Bosley published several books and articles on the subject in which he speculates wildly about NIMSA being all part of a vast conspiracy involving Nazis, the Hollow Earth, secret bases in Antarctica, and even on the moon. He also claims that at the same time the Wright brothers were just getting their airplane off the ground in 1903, NIMSA was already piloting rocket ships to Mars. It's impossible to say whether we should believe anything Charles Delshaw put down in his notebooks. Even still, those notebooks are considered quite valuable to collectors, with single pages going for as much as $15,000 in the collector's market today. So many of the historical accounts of phantom airships being sighted throughout the late 19th century are of such a dubious origin. It's difficult to know how many of these accounts we can actually believe. At the same time, there are plenty of confirmed records of very real inventors, with very real lighter-than-air vehicles that were being flown around this same time period. For the most part, though, the original cluster of phantom airship stories that spread like wildfire throughout the U.S. newspapers died off by the end of 1897. And yet, during that very same year, a new style of airship with a more rigid aluminum frame was being developed by a Hungarian-Croatian engineer named David Schwartz. After Schwartz died, his widow was paid 15,000 marks for her husband's design by a wealthy count, who rechristened the vehicle with his own name. This airship would later be used by the Germans as both a vehicle for transport as well as a weapon of war. It also just so happened to give one of the most influential rock bands in history their name. That count's name was Ferdinand von Zeppelin. The Conspirators was written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I want to thank Griffin for becoming a new Patreon supporter. And thanks to all my other supporters as well for helping support the show and keep the lights on. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, t-shirts, magnets, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you're interested in becoming a patron to the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. 
Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also available on Stitcher, Spotify, and most of the other places you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can hear our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can also send me an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Feel free to write to me and let me know how we're doing. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.